All right, I want everybody to take a good look at the person on your right. Of course, they're looking away from you, right? I'm going to tell you a story about the person sitting to your right. And for you people over here, uh, find somebody in the worship team to look at. When, this, when the person sitting next to you was in school, that person cheated, cheated on every single test. That person cheated in every way that you can think of. Uh, stole the teacher's test key. Made sure that he or she was seated next to the smartest person in the class. Changed the answers after the test was turned in, but before the teachers graded them. Had an iPhone in their... Well, maybe they were too old for that. Um, sometimes the teacher didn't catch it. Sometimes the teacher did. The teacher found out, but just didn't do anything about it. Sometimes the teacher knew and sat down and explained to them what cheaters never prosper, right? But nothing ever really happened. That person got A's on every test all year. Got their name in the paper for being on the honor roll. Named to the National Honor Society. And either they did or they will, depending on how old the person is sitting next to you, was, was considered, uh, was in the running for valedictorian of their high school class. Take a good look at that person. T take a look. Look at her. Look at Okay. I just wanted you to know that about them. Okay? All right. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Aaron Cook. I'm a member of the church here. Our pastor, Aubrey Spears, is, uh, is gone for a few weeks. Um, in case you missed it, he is out for two weeks of writing. So that's, it's, he'll be working and he'll be doing some writing. And then he's out for two weeks in addition to that on vacation. So this week, uh, I'll be delivering a sermon um, the next three weeks, we're having a pastor who's coming up from, I believe it's Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, and he's a real pastor, so there'll be real sermons. And, uh, and it's going to be a good thing. Um, this is the fifth in a series of sermons that Aubrey started and has been preaching that he calls the Gospel of Genesis. He's been preaching so far through chapters 1 through 5 of the first book of the Bible. And using the stories in these chapters to point us to Jesus, to open our eyes to, to Jesus and the rest of the Bible, showing us that the stories in Genesis prefigure the story of the history of the world. The story in Genesis is a story of, of first things, a story that's repeated itself throughout history, throughout our personal histories, recounted in most of the great literature. It's the history of the world, and it's the story of the Bible, creation, fall, and redemption. So we've been trying to keep up with Aubrey as he's at a very fast pace, wound his way through these chapters. Um, his sermons, I think, were called Creation, Adam, Sin, Redemption. And the fifth sermon in his series is called Judgment, which... Uh, Maybe why Aubrey skipped town. Um, kind of seemed to me that judgment should, should have come before redemption, and he should have done judgment last week, and I should do redemption this week. But uh, um, anyway, that's kind of the way it's worked out. Uh, judgment's not a popular topic. 
And uh, it's certainly not the one I would have chosen had I been said, hey, you want to give a sermon? Pick a topic. It wouldn't have been judgment. Um, Sometimes, as I've been thinking about this, I've been thinking that maybe Aubrey's kind of pushing me a little bit on the things I've challenged him on and he's challenged me on. So, here we go. I should also say this. As I've been thinking and praying about this sermon, my first approach would be uh, was to think about what would Aubrey say if he were finishing his series? Um, and I thought about it, and I asked him about it, and he wouldn't tell me. Um, and so, uh, and, and I probably wouldn't fully agree with it anyway. So, this is an Aubrey sermon. Uh, it's a dangerous thing to let somebody else finish your series, but that's what's going to happen today. So, and if, you're, if, you're, if you hear the sermon and you don't like it, please don't leave incarnation over the sermon. <laughs> All right. The story of God and man starts with creation. And just after creation, uh, we see God blessing his creation and blessing the capstone of his creation. That is man and woman. Placing man in a beautiful place. Giving man and woman, Adam and Eve, work to do. Fulfilling work. Giving them dominion and authority. We see that God, somehow, we don't fully understand this, is present in the garden. Heaven and earth together. God walking. Hanging out with Adam and Eve. It was perfect. Just the way God wanted it to be. The way he designed it to be. God wanted to walk in relationship with Adam and Eve. Genesis paints a picture of earth being made for man and man being made to be in relationship with God. God wanted to bless Adam and Eve. But for true love to be true love and a real relationship to be a real relationship, there has to be freedom not to love. There has to be freedom to leave the relationship. And as we've seen over the past couple weeks, that's exactly what Adam did. He sinned. He decided to usurp God's place. This is not what God wanted. It ruined everything. But God did not just bag it at that point and, and just get rid of everything. He made provisions for Adam and for Eve and for those who came after. God continued to reach out to men and women to call to men and women, to offer relationship that humans were made for, offering humans his blessing. But what happened? We've heard the last couple of weeks, we see that Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, killed his brother Abel. We see that mankind progressed. Genesis recounts that man built cities, developed tools, music, civilization. But man also regressed further and further from the garden, feeling like he didn't need or want the blessing of God, relationship with God. And Aubrey talked about last week, talked about this guy named Lamech, who was about seven generations after Adam, bragging about how violent he was. So now we get to chapter 6, what Zeke read for us this morning. Verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wow, that's quite a statement. Every intention 
of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Things had really gone downhill. The garden was gone. And not only had everything gone downhill, but nobody really seemed to notice. Jesus said in, uh, in what um, Luke read for us this morning, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. Everything was just going hunky-dory, living their lives. There was no thought of God, no recognition that God was calling to them or wanting to be in relationship with them, wanting restoration. There was no inkling in the people at the time of Noah that judgment was just around the corner. Look at verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It's quite a statement. The Bible tells us that God was very sad about the way this had turned out. This is not what he wanted. This is not the way he wanted it to be. Man was going further and further from God. Verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them. God was just done with it. He'd been long-suffering. He let things go, and he was gracious and merciful and continued to call to man. But man drifted. No, man ran further and further from God. And then we come to verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. A little glimmer, a wonderful little glimmer. There's this one guy, this one family, Noah. So as Aubrey described it several weeks ago, in the flood, God reversed creation, allowing the waters he contained to become uncontained, wiping out the earth, cleansing the earth, and reestablishing the order of of creation through another Adam, through Noah. If we were to go through the rest of Genesis, not to give the whole book away, but it continues. After Noah, what happened? Within a few generations, man again was in full-blown rebellion against God, not answering his call, not seeking him first. And it culminated in a story we now call Babel. Where God used language to divide and disperse mankind, kind of carved mankind up into small families of nations. And God said, all right, I'm changing things. Now I'm going to work through one family. And he chose Abraham's family to bless the whole world. But that's really not part of this series. So, the flood. The flood is not the only time in Scripture we see God judging a whole people, a nation, the world. Uh, Later in Genesis, we see the story of Sodom, in Exodus, Egypt, in Joshua, Canaan, and several times throughout the Old Testament, Jerusalem is judged by God. Each time we see several things. We see sin. We see God's long-suffering mercy and grace. Finally, there's judgment and justice. And then a remnant is saved and restored. And it's not just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, one of the central features of the return of Christ 
You know, each week we say Christ has died, Christ is buried, Christ will come again. When he returns, he's coming back as judge of the world. It's all through the New Testament, the Gospels and the Epistles. In a few minutes, after the sermon's over, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed. And it's going to be right there, front and center. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. So judgment. When you hear about the judgment of God, God's justice, Jesus coming back to be judge of the world, what thoughts come to your mind? Is that a positive image? Is that a difficult image? In our culture, the word judgment, particularly the way I'm talking about it this morning, has some really negative connotations. Especially when we're talking about a righteous God who's going to step in at some point and judge the world of sin. The image in Matthew 25 where Jesus divides the sheep and the goats and sends them different directions is a difficult image for us. Indeed, there's a lot of books you can find at the Christian bookstore right now with contemporary Christian writers who spend a lot of time discounting or explaining away the idea that sin and sinners will face judgment. Yet it's interesting to see that in Scripture, many times God's coming judgment is presented as a good thing, a great thing, something to be celebrated and longed for and yearned for. Psalm 19, the judgment of the Lord is true and righteous altogether, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Our psalm this morning, Psalm 98, the psalmist said, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. And later on, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. You see this through the minor prophets as well. Zephaniah chapter 3. Woe to her who... And he's talking about uh, the coming judgment against Jerusalem. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves and leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. The promise of the judgment of God is the promise that God will one day set the world to rights, to borrow a phrase from Bishop Wright. That God will fix what is broken. That the problem of evil will be solved. And that heaven and earth will again be one. We can't get to the new heaven and the new earth a perfect place until sin is eradicated. We pray for this each week when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We live in a world full of systemic injustice, bullying, violence, pride, oppression, exploitation, and rebellion against God. And it's not just our world. It's in our own hearts. 
Without careful cultivation, my heart, your heart, tends toward pride, not loving others, failing to see other people as God sees them, seeing people for what I can get out of them. Jesus told us in our reading this morning that at some point in the future, it's going to be just like the days of Noah. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart will be only evil continually. Now, evil sounds like a really harsh word. Maybe you're picturing uh, Satan as red and scaly with a bifurcated tail carrying a hay fork. But when you think of evil to include pride, hatred, greed, selfishness, anger, lust, sloth, suddenly a culture like that, a heart like that, doesn't seem too far from home. Jesus said, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. It was not just that their thoughts were always evil continually. It's that they didn't see it coming. They thought they were in pretty good shape, that they had nothing to fear. Jesus said, it's going to be the same way when I come back to judge the world. People will be blind, and they will be blindsided. He describes it this way, kind of dramatically. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. At this point in the passage in Matthew, I'm sorry, the point of the passage in Matthew, it's to say we have no idea when Jesus, the Son of Man, will return. We're going to be just like in the days prior to Noah. When everyone assumed that life was just going to go on forever, uninterrupted, without judgment, then, bang, it will happen. Without any sort of additional last-minute warning. Peter, in the passage that Nelmarie read, echoes the words of Christ. Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that existed was deluged or flooded with water and perished. Talking about Noah's flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, and destruction of the ungodly. Peter's reminding his readers, like Christ did, that the people in Noah's day didn't see it coming. In fact, they mocked the idea of a coming judgment. It's going to be the same when Christ returns. Why is it taking so long? Why is there such a delay? Why does it seem like this judgment is never going to come? Why is evil and sin allowed to go on and on, seemingly unchecked and unpunished. 
Peter says in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's taking so much time because God genuinely wants to save the whole world. He extends his grace and his mercy and his blessing to all repeatedly, over and over again. Each week we pray during communion, whose nature is always to have mercy, referring to God. I love that line. It sure seems like that always means always. But the Bible tells us that someday that mercy will end and Christ will judge the world. You see, God is not like the teacher in the story of the person sitting to your right. The teacher who doesn't see the cheating or is weak in his response to the cheating. He loves this world so much that he offered his only son to fix it all. But like the people before the flood, the people all around us today are blindly refusing to budge, thinking that everything will always continue as before. So, the person sitting to your right. Remember that story about that person? I got something else to tell you about that person. At the very end of that person's senior year, after several years of the teacher begging that person to stop cheating, the teacher finally stepped in, pulled that person out of class, suspended him from school, and that person flunked. That's why the person next to you never graduated from high school. Suppose that was a true story, right? Was that the right ending? Sure it was. The way I told the story at the beginning of the sermon was very unsatisfactory. The person sitting next to you was getting away with blatant cheating, in the running to be valedictorian. That was pretty messed up, wasn't it? But finally, judgment, justice came and made things right. It's the way it is in good movies and in good stories, right? Good books. Um... I know my children get pretty upset when judgment or justice don't come in at the end of the movie and save the day. So when we think about the judgment of God, when we think about Jesus coming, on the one hand, to take some into the newly recreated and perfected earth, where heaven and earth are no longer separated, and on the other hand, eradicating sin, And as the scripture says, destroying the ungodly. Why don't we see that judgment, justice, in the same way that we see the cheater that gets what's coming? Or the bad guy in the movie that gets caught and judged at the end? I'm going to close with this. I think there's two reasons why we struggle with this idea of Christ coming as judge. We struggle with this idea of the judgment. When we have no problem with it in the movies or in the stories. One, we really don't believe that sin is so bad that it deserves God's judgment. We look around at our culture And we fail to call sin by its name. We are blinded to sin that's all around us. 
Excessive greed, we call capitalism. Rampant laziness, we call entertainment. Contempt for others, our narcissism, lust. We don't believe the sins of our culture are really that bad. That they're worthy of judgment. That they're worthy of hell. And we don't believe that our sins, my sins, are really that bad. So what do we do? We call them white lies. Sneak peeks at what I shouldn't be looking at. Fits of anger because I'm right. Ambition for power. Always needing the last word. Harboring contempt for the people I work with because, well, after all, they're idiots. All sin, including my sin, must be eradicated before the kingdom can come in its fullness. Before new heaven comes to earth. Our culture, the society around us, certainly doesn't believe that. And if we're honest with ourselves, we really don't believe that either. Now, I know there's some people here who have a deep sense of the horror of your sin. And your struggle is with accepting God's grace and the feeling you have to earn it. So, if that's your struggle, I'm not talking to you. But I'll bet for most of us in here, if we're honest, our sin deserves judgment, but we really don't believe it. Our sin, personally and as a nation, deserves judgment and deserves judgment now. Our sin problem runs very deep. But God, Peter says, is long-suffering and patient. He wants to bless you. He wants to save you. He wants no one to perish under his judgment. He is so full of grace and mercy. He's deferring the day of judgment. And it looks like some, some translations of Peter, the Peter passage, refer to God as looking like he's being slack. Um, and I think that's a great word. And here's a second reason I think many of us struggle with the judgment that Jesus is coming to judge the world. We've grown so accustomed to God's long-suffering grace and mercy that we've come to feel entitled to it. We think that grace and mercy is normative, the way it's supposed to be, because we see it all the time. We know it all the time. We mistake God's grace and mercy for his approval, like the teacher of the person sitting next to you. Or at least his agreement with us that our sin really isn't that bad. That it really doesn't deserve punishment or judgment or hell. The church is tempted because God's long-suffering patience. The church is tempted to start viewing sin the way the world views it. Start adopting the world's view that whatever comes naturally is what is good. Rather than looking to what God has said is good. And what God says is sin. When we feel entitled to God's grace and mercy and his long-suffering love, we're no longer grateful. We're no longer appreciative. We no longer stare in wonder at what God has done and continues to do for us. Brothers and sisters, judgment is coming. That was Noah's message. And judgment came. Genesis 7 says, 
God, with the flood, blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. That's the way God eradicated sin and restored his creation. So make no mistake, Jesus is coming and he will judge the living and the dead. Now we don't know when that's going to be, whether it's in our lifetime or not. But our sin is great and deserves judgment. Believe that. But God's grace is great as well. He doesn't want anyone to perish or to fall under his judgment. If you've never repented, turn to Christ today. If you're a Christian and you've forgotten the depth of your sin, if you've drifted into ungratefulness, if you're living your life as if there will be no judgment, repent and turn to Christ today. Let's pray.